Well, welcome to part one of a brand new series. This will take us through um, June and July. Really, really excited about this. We're going to go through the book of James for the next couple months. Uh, we'll start here. Um, a couple, well, more like a decade ago, I was faced with um, some new reality when it came to my health. I went to uh, my doctor for a routine checkup, did the blood work, did the heart work, the, the whole family medical history thing, and uh, walked away with a brand new piece of information about my health. Basically, my cholesterol was, was too high. And I'm not just talking about a little bit high um, this was like I had gone on a carbohydrate bender for the last 30 years high. Um, my doctor said it didn't matter um, if I exercised or if I was a vegan or anything. He said it's just, it, it's just a part of who you are. So long story short, I've been taking uh, cholesterol medicine off and on for the last decade, decade or so. Now, uh, some of you can identify with that. You've got different medications you take for um, various reasons, but there's, there's one tiny, small, seemingly insignificant um, instruction on our medicine that it just, just pretty much sums up what we're going to talk about for the next couple months. Um, most bottles, most containers, most packets of medicine have the words, use as directed on them. Use as directed. And, and here's why. Because buying the medicine and using the medicine, believing in the medicine, um, telling other people how great the medicine is, even understanding how the chemicals in the medicine interact with the chemicals in your body will do you absolutely no good until you, what? Until you take the medicine. Until you use it as your doctor or your pharmacist directs you to take it. It's actually true of any product, really, you, you, you buy. You, you can tell other people how great it is. Uh, you can spend lots of money on it. You can understand how it works. You might even sell it for a living. But until you actually plug in the vacuum and use it as it was made to be used, it does you no practical good whatsoever. And so 2,000 years ago, James, the half-brother of Jesus, recognized that there were a group of Jesus followers who believed in the product. They, they were learning more on a weekly basis about the product. Uh, they were even telling other people about the product. But they weren't using it as directed. And so he wrote a letter primarily to Jewish Christians, people who had a deep and wide theological background. They, they knew everything that they needed to know. And he basically said to them, it's time for you to start using your faith the way it was supposed to be used. It's time to start applying it to your day-to-day -day life. And, and let me tell you why I think this is such an incredibly important book of the Bible for us to work through, especially in this moment in history that we find ourselves. Um, I've told you this before. 
but I grew up in a uh, religious environment that emphasized becoming a Christian. And I don't think that's necessarily specific to my upbringing. Many of you uh, could say the exact same thing. Uh, but the idea was to get people to pray a prayer, to, to make a decision to become a Christian. And, and, and it was kind of like um, Christianity was a disease, and we needed to expose as many people to it as possible. But the problem was, it, I don't know how else to say this, it didn't always take with everybody. Like half the teenagers that, that, that got infected at summer camp didn't look any different whenever school started up again. And the husbands who went forward to the altar to pray on the weekend got up and went right back to their addictions and their habits when they left church. It's, it's, it's like they got the virus, but they were asymptomatic. They, they, it didn't really show any effect in their life. And James comes along and says, no, it's not, it's not really like that. It's, 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 it's not something you catch by praying a prayer and then suddenly or magically, mysteriously, your life just changes. That's, that's not really how it works. Others of you um, grew up in a, a different tradition, maybe a tradition where your parents made sure you were baptized or, or christened as an infant. In fact, as soon as you were born, their next goal for you was to get you to the pastor, get you to the priest as soon as possible, because that water was somehow mysteriously going to preserve you or, or give you a better quality of life or, or you know, get you to heaven when you die. And I'm not making fun. I'm just saying that's the kind of environment that you grew up in. That's the, that was the belief system out there. And, and James would say, where did you get that? Like, that, that's, that's not Christianity. Um, others of you grew up in a tradition that focused on believing the right things. You, you know, your pastors would preach doctrinal sermons week after week after week, and they'd say, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what we believe. And their entire goal was to get everybody to believe correctly. Like, every Sunday was a theology lesson, and and, and you grew up making sure you believed the right thing. It didn't, didn't necessarily work itself out in your life during the week, but you believed the right thing. And James says, that's kind of part of it, but man, you're missing an entire other part. If, if that's all there is to your faith, it doesn't really do you any good. It's kind of worthless. It's It's useless. So today, as we kick off this summer series, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. In the middle of James, that's pretty much the, the theme for his entire letter. Next week, we're going to go back to the beginning and work through the whole letter. But I, I want to set up where we're going for the next couple months um, today. And, and my challenge for some of you today is that I have to uninterpret a passage of Scripture that you've heard or you've read for, for many years. I mean, this passage is at the heart of what James is trying to say. It's one of the most important sections in all of Scripture. Um, but people who do what I do um, have used this passage to actually prove the opposite of what James actually says. So 
I'm just saying that to, to say this. If you find yourself walking away going, where do you get that? I don't, I don't think I've ever heard that before. I want to encourage you to read it for yourself, study it for yourself, go out and buy a commentary on James. You can argue with me. That's perfectly fine. At the very least, you'll start reading and studying and wrestling with the text, and I think that's a win all around, okay? So, so here we go. Got a Bible or a mobile device, James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, okay? He starts by asking a really good question. Here it is. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Again, this is the theme of his letter. He's, he's saying, what practical, what useful, what, what day-to-day good can come if somebody says they have faith, but they don't do anything with it. Is there anything practical that can come with that? And then he uses a word that kind of throws us off. Can such faith save him? Here's the part that I kind of have to uninterpret. Um, Whenever we hear the word saved, used in a religious setting or conversation, especially those of us who grew up in the church, we interpret it to mean you know, have you put your faith in Jesus as the only way to heaven? Are you saved, right? But if you asked a first century Jewish Christian, are you saved? They would look at you and they would go, from what? What, what are you asking me if I'm saved from? In, in this context... The word saved has nothing to do with heaven and hell. James uses this word three times in this letter. And all three times, he's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about I prayed the prayer kind of saved. He's talking about the word as we use it in everyday life. Like that guy saved the game. Or um, that deal saved my job. That seatbelt saved my life. I, I saved all kinds of money at the grocery store with my coupons. Okay, this isn't the, the heaven and hell kind of saved. He's talking about preserving something in your life that's important to you. Because again, he's asking the question, on a day-to-day, practical basis, can unapplied faith preserve anything important in your life? Can unapplied faith preserve anything important in your life? Can a husband who believes that he should love his wife like Christ loved the church, save or preserve his marriage if he doesn't actually love his wife like Christ loved the church? Can, um, you know, does somebody who believe what the Bible says about money and staying out of debt and giving and, and taking care of the poor, all of that stuff, can they preserve or save their financial world if they don't apply any of that to their financial world? Can, can faith that's never been applied save your self-esteem as you work through um, high school and college with all the temptations? Can faith that's never applied do anything to preserve your reputation or your relationships at any level? Because see, behind this question, behind this question is a loving Heavenly Father whose desire is to preserve what's most important to him 
because you're most important to him. That, that he says to us, I want to preserve your self-esteem, teenagers. I, and, and that's how, I, the way I want you to do that is by applying your faith to your life. I want to preserve your marriage, husbands and wives. That's why I've given you so much information about how to do that with your faith, how to apply your faith to your marriage. I want to save your financial world. So here are some things I want you to apply in your financial world. But faith that never works, faith that never acts, is worthless when it comes to saving anything important in your life. So again, James asks, can unapplied faith save? Can it preserve anything important in your life? And the answer to that question, we would all agree, is no, it can't. To think that simply believing the right things or the fact that you prayed a prayer or you baptized is going to magically preserve your life or do any practical good is not true. It's just not true. And then James gives us an illustration. This isn't a heaven and hell illustration. This is an everyday practical illustration. Verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does, there's the key word, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? He says, okay, uh, let's say another Christian comes to you and um, they start telling you about how they'd lost their job and they're really embarrassed and the bank's getting ready to foreclose on their house and they just need some lunch money. And as they tell um, their story, you're legitimately heartbroken over what they're going through. Maybe you can even empathize because you've gone through it before. And as they tell their story, you genuinely believe that they're actually going through this. So you just decide, okay, hey, let's, let's, let's pray for them right here, right now. God, I just pray that you would provide for their needs. Send them an angel to provide them with some lunch money. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, guys, good luck with that, honey. Let's go. We got reservations to Blue Moose. That's not a faith problem. You, you believe their story. You're genuinely concerned. But what good is it if you don't do anything about it? If, if, if you don't do anything, you're in the same category as the person who says, well, that's just tough luck. <laughs> they, they, they probably brought it on themselves by being so lazy. James says, simply believe in the right stuff. Singing about the right stuff reading the right stuff, telling other people about the right stuff until it's used as directed. It's worthless. It's useless. He actually uses a different word. He presses in on this even more. Verse 17, in the same way. So he's pointing back to the illustration. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's dead. He says there's basically two kinds of faith. It's not real faith and fake faith. It's not head faith and heart faith. It's living faith or dead faith. It's active faith or inactive faith. And every Jesus follower has faith. The question is, is it alive or is it dead? 
the Greek word here, dead, um, it doesn't mean non-existent. It means barren or useless or, or idle. It's like when I say my car battery is dead. I'm not going to pop the hood and get in there and there's no battery there. It's not the battery's gone. It's just it's useless. It doesn't work. It's idle. It's barren. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting. James, um, James knew there would be people who wouldn't agree with him on this. And there are actually a few theological heavyweights throughout church history. Um, some names that you would recognize that don't agree with James on this at all. So James actually, he, he recognizes this. So he uses a literary device that was common then, it's still used today, and he makes up an imaginary person to argue with him. It's an objector. And we're going to call the objector Jimmy. I'm sorry if there are any Jimmys <laughs> tuning in today, but that's the name we're going to give the objector, okay? Jimmy comes along and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I know where you're going with this, James, because at the end of your argument, you're going to say, if you believe in A, then you need to do B. If I believe all this stuff, you're going to say I have to live my life a certain way, and I'm sorry, but you're not going to tell me how to live my life, James. Don't tell me how to do my marriage. Uh, don't tell me how to handle my money. Don't tell me uh, what I can and can't do with my own body. Don't start messing with my life. I believe the same thing you do, James. But just because two people believe the same thing doesn't mean they have to apply it the same way. Does that argument sound familiar to anybody? So James introduces the objector who makes an argument against what James is saying. And here's what Jimmy says, verse 18. But someone, a.k.a. Jimmy, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Jimmy says, go ahead. Show me your faith. The word is prove to me that you have faith. To which James and all of us would go, that's impossible. I, I can't prove to you that I have faith. It's, it's intangible. It's not something that you can get your hands on. To which Jimmy would say, aha, see, I, I, you're saying you have faith, but you can't prove it. And then Jimmy gives an illustration. This is a verse that used to scare me to death. But again, it's not coming from James. It's coming from Jimmy, the objector. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Good, Jimmy says. We both believe the same thing, but just because we believe there's one God doesn't mean we have to apply it the same way, and I'll prove it, because even the demons believe that and shudder. Here, here's Jimmy's point. James, you and the demons believe the same thing, but you don't apply it in the same way. You both believe there's one God, but you rejoice, and they shudder. So just because two people believe the same thing doesn't mean they have to apply it the same way. You live your life your way. I'll live my life my way because I've just proven that two people can believe the same thing and apply it in a completely different way. Case closed. I win. 
this, this is the prevailing thought, especially in American Christianity today. They would agree with Jimmy that I, I believe in God, I believe in heaven and hell, I believe Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead, but I don't really think it really should change anything practical in my life. That's great that you guys believe it should, but I just don't apply my faith the same way you do. Let's just, let's just talk about what we believe. Let's debate what's going on inside of your head versus what's going on inside of my head. I mean, why, why do you always have to teach these real practical sermons? Like, can we just do another Christmas pageant? Those kids are so cute, and the sheep dressed up like angels. Why, why do we have to be so practical? Let's just talk about belief and theology and Moses and quit talking about how I should run my marriage and, and what I should do with my money and how I parent and how I should love my enemies. Quit telling me. I should apply my faith. And James says, okay, okay. But you're going to miss out on the kind of faith that actually preserves your life. You can believe and you can pray and you can believe and pray and believe and pray and believe and pray, but it won't do you any good until you actually do something with it. Here's, here's James' rebuttal to Jimmy, the objector. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he uses a very familiar character his Jewish audience would have automatically understood. He says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. They go hand in hand. And his faith was made complete by what he did, not what he believed. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Summary statement, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. What? Now, depending on your background and depending on what you know about the rest of Scripture, you might think what James just said is heresy. But, but, but this, is, this is simply what James is saying. Think with me, Jewish audience, he would say. Why do we celebrate Abraham as the father of our nation? Was it because of what he believed or because of what he did with his beliefs? Was it, was it because he believed it was a good idea to trust God? Or was it because he actually uprooted his family and moved where God told him to go? Was it because he believed it was a good idea to take his only son Isaac and place him on that altar? Or was it because he actually put his son on the altar and raised the knife? James is saying the thing we celebrate about Abraham is not his belief. It was his deeds. Because if he only believed and never did anything, we would have never heard of him. And guys, where would we be as a nation today? Wow, we wouldn't be one. Exactly. 
exactly the reason you view him as a righteous man. The reason he's declared a friend of God is not simply because of what he believed. It's because of what he did with what he believed. So application. Application for us. It's really simple, but we make it really hard. The thing that makes a difference in our lives and in our world is not simply what we believe. It's what we do with what we believe. It's the application of our faith that saves us. You say, I thought it was God who saves us. It is. But this side of heaven, the way he saves us in the sense of saving um, our families, our relationships, our finances, our self-esteem, our jobs, our marriages, all that stuff, it's through the application of our faith. Because, see, you didn't get a magic bubble for believing all the right things. I don't have a magic bubble simply because I believe the right things. I mean, come on. There are no sins that Christians can't commit, right? There are no consequences that Christians don't have to face this side of heaven. There's no practical value in simply believing the right things. It's what we do with what we believe that makes a difference in our lives. So this is the wonderful, glorious truth that we're going to talk about for the next couple months as we apply our faith. As we apply our faith, God preserves the things that are most important to him and in turn, most important to us. When you apply your faith in relationships, in in finances, at your job, when it comes to your thought life, when it comes to your self-esteem, in all the different multifaceted areas of your life, God uses that to preserve, to save the things that are most important to him for you, and in turn, they're most important to you. The other side of this is we've got to get off of this kick that says, I'm just going to believe the right things and have faith that it's all going to work out. Because, come on, isn't it true? (laughs) Isn't it true? Your greatest regrets have very little to do with what you believed and an awful lot to do with what you did. Isn't that true? We've got to move past this. It's it's not what we believe that makes faith work. It's how we apply our faith that makes faith work. And I think God is saying to you, I think he's saying to me, he's saying to us through James, I'm trying to preserve your life. I'm trying to save your life day in, day out in the most practical ways possible. But you got to be willing to apply my word, my instructions, my truth to your life. And so all the cards on the table, that's where we're going. And James, you just need to know, Just a warning, James doesn't pull any punches. 
And so I don't think we should pull any punches. What does living faith look like? What does active, application-oriented faith look like? How does belief come alive in someone's life? How, how does God want to preserve your life through the application of his word? That's where we're going. So I hope, hope you come back next week. Next week, if you want to get ready for next week, get out your Bible at some point this week. Take five or six minutes, open it up to James chapter 1, and read the first 12 verses. You want to talk about practical, relevant, what's going on right now in our world. Read James chapter 1, the first 12 verses, and we'll come back next week for part two of this series.